0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. Okay, you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and WERU.org. Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman, is up next.
1: Good morning. I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is the Healthy Options Program. Today, we welcome back Dr. Beatrice Santier for our yearly talk on ticks, Lyme disease, and other tick-borne illnesses. Dr. Santir is an internist and pediatrician living in Lincoln, Maine. She's a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the American College of Physicians. She participates in the State of Maine CDC's Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup and the International Lyme and Associated Lyme Disease Society, that's ILADS, and has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine, New England, and the U.S. to both professional and community groups. Dr. Santier also serves as a medical advisor for Maine Lyme, a nonprofit dedicated to decreasing Lyme and related tick-borne diseases in Maine through awareness, prevention, education, and advocacy. Welcome back to Healthy Options, Dr. Beatrice Santier. We appreciate you joining us today right here on WERU. Hello, B, are you there? Well. Okay. Well, good morning. Good morning, B. How good are morning. you today? Good. Good, Rhonda. Great. Well, thanks for uh for coming back for the uh, yearly talk and and, you know, it seems we've done this uh, many times, but uh, there's always something new, uh, maybe sadly or happily. Well,
0: well, always something new, and really the old message is still the good message, you know? Prevention and early recognition really matter in this one.
1: So, um, yes, where, where to begin? Tw- 20,000 20, and 19. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um what, what anything anything new and different that we should know about just to to kind of get us rolling here you were uh, we were discussing some things yesterday and you were yeah. Yeah. well
0: there are a couple of of things that are um not particularly new in terms of prevention and early recognition but for those who have persistent illness after Lyme disease there are some interesting things happening um two groups are predominantly involved in this, although there are more than these two groups. But uh, uh, Kim Lewis out of Northeastern is looking at persister organisms, and uh, Dr. Zhang in um, Johns Hopkins is looking at persister organisms. And, of course, they have groups of people with whom they're working. And uh, I was at a conference in the fall where Dr. Lewis um, spoke of... uh, an antibiotic, it's actually an old antibiotic that he's identified and is now working on to see if it will be part of uh, a useful treatment regimen for people who remain sick, who may have um, what are called persister organisms after the, the usual um, and customary organisms have been cleared. You know, there are a number of reasons why people might remain ill after Lyme. One of those reasons is persistent infection, and it can be with uh, this bacteria. For some people, they become reinfected. For others, they may have um, co-infecting organisms that aren't treated by the Mm. antibiotics that we use to treat Lyme. And for some people, they may have an immune response that's set off and doesn't quiet down properly. So there are a lot of reasons, and all of them are being explored. And what I know is that having one, doesn't mean you can't have others as well. Right. So it's exciting news that these folks are looking at these organisms. And Dr. Zhang, out of uh, Johns Hopkins' work, has been really helpful, has led to some studies by clinicians looking at combinations of antibiotics that he has used um, in the lab. And and some of this early work is looking good um, for resolution of symptoms for people who have been ill sometimes for very long periods of time really? and it in, yeah it and involves treating it more like um we approach things like leprosy or tuberculosis which we know are slow growers and can persist can be latent and almost always require a combination of antibiotics to um to resolve the infection so it so lots of exciting stuff. But Dr. Zhang's very exciting article that just came out um, is with an animal model of this persisting infection. He created a mouse model of uh, of an arthritis caused by persister-type organisms. And it's really hard to explain what these are. It's not that they're resistant to antibiotics. It's not like... You know, we give an antibiotic and we don't wipe out all of the, the colonies and they develop a resistance. It's not like that. It's This is a, a colony of the organisms that were never susceptible to the usual antibiotics. So this mouse model of arthritis is very exciting because it's the first in-life kind of model of this persisting infection. And the two points that I took away from from this, this new piece of uh, work, is that first, the arthritis itself was more severe in this form. And second, the usual antibiotics did not touch it. And so he, he used a different combination, more in line with his persistent organisms, and was able to um, cure the mice.
1: Dare, dare we, we? We we wouldn't dare name what that antibiotic is at this point. <laughs> not no, <yet>. let's not. <laughs> not. No, because uh, not yet. That would be yes. N- not premature. Not prime time. <laughs> yeah, not in prime time. But uh, but s- stay tuned.
0: But it's exciting work. It's work that takes um, this this line of investigation from the laboratory um, to real life. Uh, granted, real life in in animal models, but that's often how we figure out um mm-hmm. our way to treating humans. So it it it's just there's a little good news on that well, front.
1: Well, I I think this is the first time we've actually talked about any kind of treatment that might be new and different. Yeah. Um, and and for many years. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, you know at, at some point we'll have to do a show about treatment and all other and and many different kinds of options, but sure. um right now that's that is that is good news. What what is it like you know we'll we'll get into all the the usual things to do to prevent. Yeah. Um but since we are discussing something persistent, yeah. what does that look like? Could people go into remission and then something can 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 rear its head again or well, what what I know it would be probably unique to each individual, but Well, you nailed it on that. Yes. That's
0: precisely the case. This is really a person-by-person kind of experience. You know, we know from the NIH retreatment trials, we know that people with persisting illness after receiving antibiotics for a diagnosis of Lyme disease, antibiotics that would have been presumed to be effective, um, some people remain ill. Um, Some people improve and then become ill again. Now, you have to always be careful in that case that you're not missing a reinfection or another illness. So what I really encourage people and their providers to uh, to do is be circumspect. You know, you don't want someone who is only going to treat your Lyme. You want someone who will treat what's wrong with you. And that means doing good investigation, looking at other possibilities, and considering the possibility of a persisting infection. From those trials, we know that people can be as ill as people who have congestive heart failure, as fatigued as people with multiple sclerosis, and in as much pain as people who are post-operative. So it it can be a very... debilitating circumstance it is not always completely debilitating but persisting symptoms persisting illness after after a diagnosis of Lyme uh, really needs uh, careful thoughtful evaluation so that we can figure out what those fevers are what those pains are fatigue is almost always a big part of it for people Uh, and it's a significant fatigue you know all of us get tired and so we might imagine that we know what that means. But if you are tired because of illness, it's a very different experience of fatigue. It's like an energy wall, not just tired like you didn't sleep well last night. And generally speaking, people find that rest doesn't fully refresh them. So it, it, it's complicated. But the three, I guess, pillars of persisting illness after Lyme would be fatigue, fatigue, some kind of musculoskeletal pain, usually of a migratory nature. By that I mean today it's a knee, uh, next week it's your elbow, uh, then it's your ankles. It's not always the same joint all the time, although it can be. And the last pillar would be some kind of neurologic kind of symptoms or involvement. When people have symptoms from those three areas, I think we have to think hard about whether... Their line is is persisting, and then try to figure out because we don't entirely understand the mechanisms for persistence, and we know that persisting infection is one of them. You have to figure out on a person by person basis what the right way to approach um, this illness is, and and move forward. You know, if we had the answers, we'd all do it. <laughs> so,
1: when you say neurological, um, Bell's palsy,
0: well. Th- Well, you know, usually if people have uh, a Bell's palsy or a 7th nerve palsy and it's related to Lyme, um, that happens earlier than late, so Mm -hmm. in the first few weeks to um, months of the illness. So that would be a late manifestation. Would it be a persistent one? Sometimes for some people, but um, it is often uh, neuropathies, so uh, either pain or uh, numbness and tingling in an extremity. It can be um, symptoms of, of pain along a nerve root. Um, it is often um, a problem with your thinking. Uh, cognition becomes um, impaired in ways, perhaps especially, I guess, with memory uh, and attention. Usually short-term memory is, is involved So that it becomes more difficult for people to do their usual activities because their brain just is not as engaged. A lot of folks talk about a brain fog, Mm -hmm. that sense of just not being able to get out of your own way. Oh, and I guess I did not mention this too, but for some people it also involves um, mood disorders or um, other neuropsychiatric kinds of symptoms, although that's not... Uh, perhaps as uh, as prominently known, we know that certainly uh, it is another element that we need to be really aware of in people who remain ill.
2: Mm.
1: So, I would say also that sometimes Lyme does not get diagnosed, and I I, I would imagine uh, maybe you can clarify. I don't think the blood tests or the diagnostic tools we have have changed.
0: Well, we haven't really gotten any farther than we were uh, certainly last time we had this discussion. But, you know, the problem with the blood tests that we do have, uh, they are not they're just not good enough um, early in the disease. So if you have um, early symptoms of Lyme with the rash or flu like symptoms, the test may not be positive because it takes two to six weeks to develop an antibody response to the disease later in the disease. The tests don't perform equally well for all the ways that people might have, um, might might present with their illness. So, if you have a flaming hot joint, the tests are actually really good for that, about 97% sensitivity in a flaming hot joint. But if you have neurologic symptoms, that problems with cognition or neuropathy or sleep disturbance, I mean, this whole list of neurosymptoms. The tests are only about 72% sensitive for those kinds of presentations, so it's not perfect. And then when we get to persisting illness, we don't know what to do with the test because you can be well and the antibody test might still be positive, or you can be ill and the antibodies can have waned. So not a perfect world. We don't have tests that can reliably tell us who has an active infection and who doesn't. You know, we'd love to do cultures and PCR, but it's a slow-growing organism. It's not often found in in blood. And and for PCR, although it's great if it's positive. What what does
1: PCR mean? Oh,
0: I'm sorry. Uh, Polymerase chain reactions. It's looking at the DNA of the bacteria. Oh, wow. Um, And if we do that in blood and it's positive, it's really very good evidence, but it's rarely going to be positive in blood or in spinal fluid because this is an infection of relatively few organisms and the organisms tend to get into the tissues they don't hang out in the blood so it it's it would be great if we had a direct test that could tell
1: us so I, i have seen people um who have odd presentations you know, something neurological or something, the brain fog, never saw a tick, didn't get the rash. Um, People are telling me and have, well, we did the Lyme test and it came back negative, so we ruled out Lyme. Well, And I I hear it regularly and I'm, well, I'm not sure we really ruled out Lyme.
0: (laughs) Well, it's not wrong to look at other things. No. You know, but it's also not correct to say that a negative test rules out Lyme. The way the tests are usually ordered at this point is uh, what's called a two-tier system of testing. So there's a a first test that's done, and only if that test is positive or iffy does the second test get done. Usually that's, That's how people would tend to order it. It's how it's recommended to be ordered. The problem with that system is the sensitivities are not sufficient to do it in the two-tiered way. So let's say uh, that we have uh, a test that's 80 or even 85% sensitive, that first-level test. Well, that means we're missing 15% of people
2: Hmm.
0: with the first test. If your second test is also eighty or eighty-five percent sensitive, then we've we've compounded that, right? right? So so we can miss you know up to forty percent of people if we use the test alone or the test as the most important data point. What I think it's important for people to recall is that no single data point trumps all the others. It it's the story tell. It's the situations they've been in. So if you have the history of potential tick exposure and you have a flu-like illness in high tick season, even if you didn't see a tick or a rash, then I think even uh, some of the most conservative physicians would say you have to seriously consider Lyme with or without a positive test. You can test early, you can test a second time, but maybe we should treat flu-like illness. History of potential tick exposure this time of year should um, get your uh, provider's attention on Lyme or a Lyme-related illness. The other. determine everything for you. you really have to take the, the person as a whole in their situation and make what we call a clinical
1: diagnosis right. So, so the co-infections that we're talking about are not tested. what you said the, uh, the Borrelia myomotoi, the what Bartonella or those kinds of things. Well, what else? There
0: are others um, particularly in Maine, the, the, the other infections that travel in, in the same tick, um, are anaplasma, which is a white blood cell invader. And, you know, people generally would have pretty good fever, headache, achiness in their body. So still kind of flu-like symptoms. People have to think about tick-borne disease if they get flu-like symptoms. Another is babesia or babesiosis. Babesia is a malaria-like parasite that invades red blood cells. Again, fever, Fatigue, headache, air hunger,
1: um, air hunger, a, well, shortness of
0: breath, kind no. of short of breath, but but it, it's hard to describe. And yet, I'm, once I'm feeling think- it right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, how you doing, everybody out there? Okay, we're we're just giving we're just you know blithely just you know all of these things. Everybody feeling all right? Just be careful. Well, pull over to the side of the road. Put your head between your legs if you're feeling a little faint right now. All right. All right. So well, go ahead. A little air a little air, air hunger. Hunger. go ahead.
0: And the, the third um important one, although it does not happen as frequently, but it's particularly important because its transmission time um on tick bite is much shorter than any of the others. Uh it can be transmitted in ten to fifteen minutes and that is Powassan virus. Mm. And Powassan virus uh affects uh the nervous system. It's it's a nervous system virus. Um It is, you know, perhaps most people who get it actually don't know they had it. They have a mild illness. But when it is a serious illness, it involves the nervous system. And we had a a fatal case in 2013 here in the state. So it's a spotty occurrence. You know, uh, last year, I guess, there were no cases. In 2017, there were three. Mm. But, But its transmission time is is 10 to 15 minutes, unlike the others where, you know, something, although it may be under 24 hours for, for, for Lyme, it's probably 24 hours or more most of the time. For Babesium more, uh, longer most of the time. Anaplasma is within 24 hours, can be transmitted. And, and so, I, you know, early removal of ticks is important, but keeping them off of you is probably even more important. Oh. And, and there are ways to do that.
1: We will talk about that in a second. I, okay. I just want to do a little business here. For people who have just tuned in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio, and we're discussing ticks and tick-borne illnesses. Our guest today is Dr. Beatrice Santier. She's with us by phone. And um, thank you for being here. Let's continue. So we're when, when we have uh, that kind of... Um, of situation where whether you 've had the rash or not and you're having right. these Ill- uh, this kind of acute illness, yeah um, I guess I, I do want to just mention this that we, we this is still being given the the two dose doxy can we talk about that, and we're oh. talking about doxycycline still yes. at the moment um. On that plane, I know, yeah. again, uh, we have very sophisticated listeners here yeah. at WERU, yeah. and we can be talking about all the homeopathy and Chinese herbs and other kinds of things uh, at some point that can also be used um, in conjunction with with, um, with what we're discussing today. Uh, I want to put that all out there. But right now, um, let's talk about the doxy and, yeah. and what we know and about co-infections and some of the things that you're an expert on. <laughs>
0: Still a beginner, absolutely. Still All of a beginner. Us. I hope so. Um, but let, let's talk about uh, that single dose doxycycline because I think there is some confusion around that. Um, single dose doxycycline uh, is a preventative for Lyme disease um, in if you have a, an identified tick attachment and specifically Uh, a black-legged tick or deer tick, the Ixodes scapularis, the tick that carries the bacteria that causes Lyme. It is a preventative measure. Um, Now, it's based on a single study, and there were problems with the study, so we could could discuss whether it's really uh, a useful preventive measure. But first I want to eliminate some ideas about it. It is not treatment for the rash of Lyme disease it is not treatment for suspected Lyme disease, it is a prevention technique. So uh, I've become a little alarmed because people tell me that they see their provider, they have an expanding red rash, um, which is the the rash of Lyme disease. That is the most common presentation, a uniformly red expanding rash. Generally, it happens at the site of a tick bite, but most people don't see the tick. Only about 30% of people ever um, actually see the tick that gives them the rash. So if you have a rash, an expanding red rash, you have erythema migrans, the rash of Lyme disease. That is Lyme disease, and that needs full treatment, not single dose or two doses of doxycycline. That needs full treatment, and the best treatment according to the earliest studies that were done, is three weeks of doxycycline if what you have is the rash alone. Now, three weeks of doxycycline is a good choice for two reasons. One, it treats the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. And the other is that it also treats Anaplasma. So, doxycycline is a really nice antibiotic to use in this circumstance. What I tell folks is, you know, three weeks is what we're starting with, and then there needs to be follow-up because you should be well at the end of that. In the studies on early Lyme, three weeks of doxycycline was curative in between 75 and 80% of of patients in the trial. Um, And interestingly enough, if you were not cured with it, retreatment, with another three weeks, took you the rest of the distance. So this, this needs to be followed up. Now, it, there are circumstances that might tell you that someone will need more than that amount of antibiotic. Typically, if people have multiple rashes at the time that they're diagnosed, if they have a profound illness, if they're just really, really sick,
2: mm.
0: if they have neurologic symptoms, at the time of diagnosis, and if they're still sick at the end of treatment, then those are really good indicators that they will benefit from longer treatment at that point. So uh, so we have some information to use for that. Now, the single-dose doxy for a preventative, I think um, there, there are a couple of problems with it. Uh, although the effectiveness was reported as like 87% really? effective, Um, The problem is that the marker they were using for um, efficacy was the development of a rash at the site of the tick bite. And what we know is that not everybody develops a rash. So it was an imperfect marker. Uh, But, you know, you have to use something. The the other thing is that they did not count in that study people who were negative... by blood at the beginning became positive and had a flu-like illness, and there was such a case in the study. It it was it, was, it just wasn't perfect. What study is? And finally, they did have someone who um, had developed Lyme disease, definite Lyme disease, but did not develop positive blood tests, and that's probably the worry. So, what if it's even fifty percent effective at preventing it? You know, should you do it? Well. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe there are longer treatments that would work better. But the the as long as you and your provider understand that you could still develop Lyme disease and you might not have positive blood tests if you do, then I, I don't get too pushed up about it. But I think, I think that that particular nuance is not well understood.
1: No, I think people think that they're being treated. Yeah. And now we're safe. Um, the other thing is when you start taking... If we're saying that this is a very slow-growing bacteria. Yep. And so you've gotten a, a tick, and we're we're going to talk about how to remove a tick in a minute. Yeah. Um, but when you have a tick, you've taken it out. Let's say it's not, as we say, a compromised tick removal. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm getting ahead you of get myself. You get a whole tick. Yeah.
0: Okay. Nice, Nice removal. Okay.
1: Good. And you've taken... The two doses doesn 't that affect your immune system doesn 't it and and then what doesn 't that change how how the blood test would react anyway
0: precisely um, it it doesn 't necessarily but it can turn off your antibody response. An early dose of antibiotics can be insufficient to treat the infection and yet turn off your body 's antibody response, and so you may be you know six weeks later really sick. Yeah but your blood tests will be negative. negative. And so,
1: yeah, another reason not to totally rely. You have to see what's in front of you. Yeah, Um, there
0: were a few other studies that tried to look at um, preventive treatment with antibiotics for for tick bite. And, you know, there were three 10-day studies done in the U.S. with long follow-up, so they were good studies in terms of being able to identify whether people actually developed the disease. They did not ever rise to statistical significance of the antibiotic over the placebo, hmm. but there were so few cases of Lyme in the placebo group that it just didn't meet statistical significance. It certainly looked better, but you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't quite rise to it, you can't pretend that it did. But it makes sense to me that that a little longer might be more prudent there was a mouse well there were two mouse studies that looked at this again this is an animal model but the mouse studies uh, compared a single dose of doxycycline similar to what was used in the people study with a long-acting doxycycline don't get your hopes up it's not available to people mm. um And what they found is that the single-dose doxy was about 43% effective at protecting mice. Now, I find that amazing that it was protective at all, but 43%. And the long-acting doxy was 100% effective. And it was active in little mouse bodies for 19 days. So something between 10 and 19 days might make some sense here. Or, or longer. There are some physicians who treat for three weeks. They treat it like early disease. You know, what I guess the take-home message is for people is it is not well worked out in humans. So you can have some involvement in this decision-making, but it's not well worked out. The, the single doxy, single-dose doxy single doxy is not a perfect answer. There was a study in Europe that also tried to replicate it. This was reported out at a conference last year. I haven't seen the paper yet. And in the European study, uh, which very much reflected what the the American single dose study looked like, uh, it was about fifty three percent effective at preventing Lyme disease in their study population. Now we can't can't draw perfect comparisons between us and Europe because they have three different uh, species of Borrelia that are likely to be um, participant in causing Lyme disease so it may not be directly translatable but still it it looks more like the mouse study looks more like something less than hmm. uh, as effective as as we thought it so might be
1: two weeks three weeks
0: so some some longer amount of doxy hmm. if, if it's a tick bite that needs um, needs prophylactic antibiotics now some people don't want to take antibiotics and I, I can't Prosecute them for that. So, are there things about the tick bite that might um, push you over the edge towards it? Well, it turns out this has been looked at a bit. If the tick appears engorged, if it looks like it's a little swollen, if it's not a nice flat tick, that suggests it has fed long enough to transmit disease if it's carrying it. Now, not all ticks do. So, is the tick engorged? The second thing. How long has it been attached? You know, for a lot of years, we poo-pooed people's information around this because people generally are not good estimators of how long a tick has been attached. Well, there was a study that was done that said that it doesn't matter that they're not good at it. It turns out that their estimations seem to make some impact on whether uh, you get infection or not. So if people estimate a longer Period of time, you know, something out like it could have been there two days as mm. opposed to four hours. That's important information. Right. The third thing is whether the tick is positive for um, any of the infectors. Now, unfortunately, you can't have that piece of information when you're making your decision, but that'll come later. So, getting the tick tested and the humane is testing now. It's oh, not okay. only identifying; oh, it great. is also testing. Mm.
1: We'll have that information on the website when we, when we put this up. That'll yeah. be good. I know we, have to, we can send it to Amherst, uh, but it's yeah. great to keep it in the, in the neighborhood. Well, if we have
0: it, it'd be great to use our in-state, and I believe that their cost is is extremely reasonable. I think they, I, they do PCR testing for... Uh, and the that Lyme PCR,
1: again, for those who just tuned in uh, is... DNA. They look
0: DNA the testing. DNA of the organism. Right. They do it for the Lyme bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi. They're looking at anaplasma, and they're also looking at babesia. Now, you know, if you're well and your tick tests positive, should we treat you? Well, probably not.
2: Well, if mm. you're
0: sick and your tick tests negative, should we assume that you don't have a tick-borne disease? Probably not. <laughs> so it's not a perfect world, but it's another piece of information that we can use to try and and make our decisions and individualize this kind of treatment. And you mentioned the fourth factor, and that is the complicated tick removal. If the tick breaks, you know, although we don't worry that much about the mouth parts being left behind, it's going to act like a splinter. It's either going to fester or it's not. So the mouth parts don't worry me as such, but what that represents does, the breaking of the tick. That means that tick fluids, tick body fluids, can escape into the wound, and that can... Um, take a short-duration tick attachment and turn it into one that, that is disease-causing. So, you know, there are things, always things to consider as you're... As
1: you're oh, goodness. Well, let's just take a, a moment here again. This is Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feyman. We're talking with Dr. Beatrice Santier about ticks and tick-borne diseases, how to do clean tick removal. Don't annoy the tick. Right. Don't right. annoy the tick. Right. Says and Dr. So Santir.
0: Find those tweezers um, as close to the skin as you can. Right. And using steady, gentle pressure, pull straight up. You'll see the skin tent a little bit. That's okay. Don't stop. Just keep steady, gentle pressure straight up, and the tick will come out. And it Whoa. comes out a little hard. Yes, it does. Because it has um, its mouth parts are barbed like a oh. hook. So it's got multiple barbs on the mouth parts And in tick saliva, there's a cement-like substance that helps to anchor it. I mean, this tick is just trying to be a good animal. It wants a good blood meal. So,
1: and well, you, you, you don't know. know what's going on in the studio here. I mean, really, <laughs> people are like swirming? dropping like flies. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes, the, it's got cement, and it's got barbs, and yeah. it's after you. And okay. it's after
0: you. But and it not, wants your not
1: like in a malicious way. It's just trying no. to
2: live. You
0: know. Well, you know, and what's <laughs> here, I'm going to generate more sympathy for the tick. <laughs> um, we're Although we are a useful seed for the tick, we are a dead end as far as the infectors go, right? Because um. we're not reservoir hosts. We're not going to proliferate this bacteria you know, in our blood, and necessarily be involved in its long-term survival. So they'd really do better to feed on other creatures. But sometimes we are the ones who get in the way. Us and our domestic animals—we're accidental hosts. We we do nothing to maintain this in nature.
1: So, okay. First of all, now um, I'm I'm going to send you something. We have a special guest in the studio. Oh, we do. We do. Um, surprise guest. <laughs> Um, as usual, before preparing for a, a, a talk with uh, Dr. Beatrice Antier about ticks, I often do primary research. I think our first show, I actually had a tick bite. Just just because I'm that way, I just want to really be really primary, you know, first first hand, um, you know. Marie Curie, you know, right here. Um, <laughs> We're so, lucky to have you. <laughs> thank you. So um, while leaving uh, New Jersey, I was uh, sitting in my car, and I looked down, and crawling up my leg is a tick. Oh. Yeah, and I said, well, of course. Fortunately, it was not in me, but it was on me. And we did take a, a photo, so we do have the tick here. Okay. Um, yep, just putting on its makeup. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I'm going to do now is send this to you. In the in the interest, we do have modern technology, and I'm hoping you'll be able to take a peek at that. All right. Dee, will you will you be able to? I Let's will. See. I've got the
0: computer open. All right. So going we're sending that to mail. you yeah,
1: right here. All right. Oh, no. Okay. Hold it. I'm not doing it right. This is how it works. We're forwarding this, and we're including the picture, and I would love it if you can maybe take a look at it. I have an idea what it might be, but, Ew. you know, we haven't... <laughs> yeah they're going (laughs) around and we didn't have exactly a measurement usually you know a dime or a thumb but it is on a sears island trail map (laughs) and it's now on facebook for for those at home who want to take a peek um we do also know that we have deer ticks here we also have the um long what is it the Well, longhorn no
0: well new jersey has longhorn ticks oh but we but don't we we don't yet. we have uh, there are probably 14 tick species in maine and probably 3 of them are important for people okay. right now and that right. would be the deer tick Ixodes scapularis yeah. the, I- the dog tick Dermacentor variabilis and um i guess a growing population of a third tick called the lone star tick or Amblyomma Americanum, one. Yeah. Oh my. Well, well, well. Uh, this is a very, very handsome tick. Did you get it? Oh, good. oh my gosh! <laughs>
1: Everyone can look.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think what you have here, is, it's a larger tick. It has these lacy white markings on its back. I yeah. think this is a male dog tick.
2: Yes,
1: I do too. Yeah. And
0: it's probably an adult.
1: So uh-huh. adult
0: male dog tick. And and the good news is, you know, it's not going to be able to give you Lyme, but if it had attached, it could give you several other things. What could it give you? Well, it can give you Ehrlichia. It can give you uh, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Whoa. It can give you, uh, I want to say Tularemia, but don't quote me on that. I'm not sure.
1: Okay. Let's just take a moment. We're all hyperventilating (laughs) here in the studio. So dog ticks, you know, people would think, oh, well, it's not a lime tick, it's not a deer tick, we're, yeah. we're okay, but we're really not. Well, no
0: tick is your friend, right? They're right. repetitively feeding blood-sucking parasites that <laughs> feed on rodents.
1: Okay, say that again. We're, we're going to write a song about this. <laughs> no. Barefoot tick. Blues Hour will be now playing me.
0: Go ahead. It's repetitively a, feeding blood-sucking parasites that feed on rodents. It, you know it can't be a good plan it
1: can't be a good thing
0: but you know i do want to tell you about um the lone star tick just for a minute this Please. is the, the lone star tick has not been demonstrated to be able to transmit lyme disease although it can transmit a lyme-like illness uh called uh starry uh southern tick associated rash illness
1: southern tick associated
0: rash illness What's so th- that? it looks just like lyme and as far as we know, treating it the same way is not a harmful thing to do. But but the thing that it, it and it, too, can, I guess, transmit um, Ehrlichia and and tularemia and a couple of other viruses. But, but well, Ehrlichia, I, is is, virus. you know, Ehrlichia is a virus. No, Ehrlichia is a bacteria. It's a bacteria. It, it's a parasite that invades white blood cells. Okay, so, like
1: anaplasma.
0: Yeah, kind of like that. Uh, in fact, anaplasma used to be called Ehrlichia for long time and then they changed its name you know it's taxonomy you gotta gotta go with it okay but we have had sort of increasing numbers of um ehrlichia chaffiensis infections identified and um meeting cdc reporting criteria in maine and at first it was sort of spotty and so you know didn't think much about it but uh last year there were 19 cases now that's not a big number but it's more than there's been in the past, and there appears to be a trend upward. And so that makes me suspect that this, this tick is establishing itself. It may not be well established, but it mm. is. we knew that it was moving north. We know we've had occasional uh, sightings in Maine. But the the reason I bring it up is not just these infections that it can transmit, but this is the tick that has been associated with, uh, red meat allergy, mm. or alpha-gal allergy. And it's um, it's something that I, I just think people should be aware of. It tends to be a small tick. It's um, a little rounder than some of the others. The others tend to be a little bit more oval-shaped. But small, either uniformly dark, or it has this uh, really prominent whitish dot, on its, on its back, so the Lone Star, the, the single oh. white dot on the back.
1: Doesn't have to do with Texas. It has to do with the well, white. Well, it doesn't
0: have to do with Texas. <laughs> it has to do with that that dot. And so, it just so dog ticks have lacy white markings, can almost look like racing stripes
1: think they do. And, you know, uh, it's really hard to say if this is bigger because we don't have that dime or we don't yeah, have that. No, we there. have an L from, you know, right. trail, but that, right. I don't think that's useful. But
0: I, Well, size-wise, dog ticks tend to be bigger. Yeah. Um, deer ticks tend to be smaller. When I think deer ticks, um, I think either uniformly dark or two-toned. And I think poppy seed for the nymph and sesame seed for the adult. Mm. Um, so these are a little bigger than that. Okay. Um, The lone star tick is a little bigger than that. Not much, but, you know, this is all relative. And the dog tick would be the biggest of these three. But size is difficult, so you've got to know about the uniformly dark or two-toned, uniformly dark or single spot, or lacy markings, because those will be there even if the tick has fed. And that's the the key, because once these ticks feed, it's very difficult to determine a Mm. size difference. Mm. Um, they they all they can look pretty big so unless they're side by each. It's very hard to tell, but the markings will still be there, so you can know what the tick uh, what the tick is.
1: So a couple a couple of things. Yep. Um, one is you have a compromised tick removal. You're saying if you're not sick, but couldn't I mean how long would it it would vary by individual. So sure. treating if you have a compromised tick bite, you might want to be treating that. Well
0: you might. And so, but I think you have to make this decision one person at a time okay. with your provider. And, and, right. and, that's really the best anybody can do because, because it's not well worked out for people. Right. So it depends on, uh, you, you weigh the risks and benefits like we do everything else hmm. and, and make the judgment for you. And I think, you know, if you have a, a, Black-legged tick bite in the state of Maine. If you have an ixodes scapularis bite in the state of Maine, and there's any evidence of feeding, we know that we don't know that specific tick's likelihood of carrying infection, but we we know that the infection rates in different parts of the state can be very high. I mean, 60 percent of ticks may be infected. It, it may be well worth your while if it shows any sign of feeding to have prophylactic antibiotics for that bite. And I would at least consider doing at least 10 days and considering longer than that. Maybe while that tick is sent out for for testing, you can be taking that antibiotic. Because we have to start the treatment within 48 to 72 hours of the tick attachment um, in order to prevent infection, or it really just... Doesn't seem to be effective beyond that point. They make
1: a biofilm. They protect themselves. They're very creative. this they, bacteria.
0: They, well, it, survival is part of its game. You know, it's in, it's very old bacteria. It's been around for thousands of years, so it's it's gotten very good at hmm. survival. So, so that <laughs> leads me to say. We've got to keep ticks
1: off. Of okay. Us. Yes, we do have to discuss the the, the basics. Now, I also yeah. want to say that B, you and I have had this conversation in November when I got again primary mm. research in November. So yeah. while we, while it is the first of May, Happy Birthday Belfast. W e r u. Happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday W e r u. Um, and uh, but um, this is something to be thinking about all year. Yeah. S- sadly.
0: I think sadly it is. You know, there are no longer any months of the year without um, reported cases of Lyme disease happening in them, yeah. in Maine or nationally, but right. but in Maine in particular. Uh, the the most um, prominent time, I suppose, still are the summer months, June, July, and August. Those are the, the peak months for reports, and that makes sense. It reflects the activity of the nymphal stage of the tick, again, about the size of a poppy seed, so easily missed. And people are definitely more outdoors. So the nymphal tick starts becoming active probably sometime in May Mm. in the state of Maine. So um, if it gets its blood meal or if it doesn't, um, the adult tick will then start feeding in the fall. So uh, September, October, November, we see another little spike of, of cases. If the adult fails to get a blood meal, it winters over and you know can be under the leaf litter, well insulated by the snow, so it survives. And when temperatures get above freezing, it begins questing again for its blood meal. So we see an additional little spike in um, April, May, June. We start to see that, and that's probably reflecting um, the adult tick becoming active in, you know, most of the time March is warm enough to support that, but we do have mild days in in the winter now. It's it's um it it it's a problem year round. So how do you protect yourself? Well, um, you can wear light colored clothing when you're outdoors. They're dark colored ticks. It's useful for you to identify them on your clothes. Um, if you tuck your shirt into your pants, pants into socks, create that ever so slightly nerdy but stylish appearance that uh, the game wardens have made famous, then you have created a barrier from the ground to your wrist. If you wear treated clothing, and I can't emphasize this enough, if you treat your clothing with permethrin, which is useless on your skin, but superb on fabrics, you can kill ticks and mosquitoes on contact. So there was a study done well yeah but it's summer and i can't you know i can't wear long pants treated with permethrin there was a study done that showed that if you treat your shoes and socks so sneakers and socks that there are 73 times fewer tick attachments than if you don't that that's a huge number so at least get shoes and socks now you have to treat with permethrin ahead of time because you need to spray the fabric and let it dry in once it's dried in, it will last through several washes. Or you can purchase pre-treated clothing or send your clothing to be treated by a company called Insect Shield, in, in which I have no shares. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Insect Shield will treat your clothes or you can buy treated clothing. And um, that will last through 70 washes. That's They feel it's the lifetime of the fabric. So you know, it's it's a worthwhile thing to do. Designate a set of clothes—the garden clothes, or the the scout uniform, or the, the hunting clothes, the hunting clothes, the hiking clothes. You know, set yourself up. I I want to remind gardeners too that if you're on your hands and knees, then shoes and socks needs to be looked at. Um, Gloves. Yeah, think about what else is down close to uh, the vegetation. What else? You need to, to treat.
1: No, I guess we should say when it's wet, if you're doing it yourself, it is toxic to uh, cat. cats. Yeah, so yeah.
0: once it dries in, no, but while it's yeah. wet, yes, so be kind to your cat.
1: Yeah. And I-, I always
0: tell folks, you know, spray it in a well-ventilated area, treat the clothing, because yeah. you're going to spray it to the point of wet. Now, the safety of permethrin in fabric next to your skin, is a little different than its safety as you inhale it. So you want to be in a well-ventilated area. It is, it's a chrysanthemum derivative. It's relatively safe. But still, you know, I'm a simple thinker, do things in a way that limits any toxic exposures. So you've got your clothes done up. Um, if you then use repellents, you can use them fairly sparingly. Uh, DEET is still the gold standard, 23 to 50%. Less than that really probably isn't effective for ticks. But the real key is read the label. You want to use an EPA-registered repellent if you can. Uh, What the registration tells you is that it's been evaluated for Mm -hmm. safety and efficacy. So DEET is one. Picaridin at 20% has been found to be very effective, Mm -hmm. in some studies more effective than DEET. Um, Ir thirty five thirty five at at least fifteen percent more products are offering it at twenty percent now, but at least fifteen percent. That was the studied dose found to be comparable to DEET in efficacy. Its claim to the fame, they say, is you don't have to wash it off after use. Again, I'm a oh, simple thinker. Wash, wash everything it off. off. And, <laughs> wash it off. Why wouldn't you? Right. And you know the problems we have. Sixty. Almost five years of safety and efficacy data on DEET, and in, the problems have arisen when high dose, repeated applications were given over a lengthy period of time, without washing it off in between. One hundred percent
1: DEET—you don't need that
0: kind of. Well, percentage. you just don't. You just don't. But permethrin for clothes. Deep picaridin, IR3535, and there is one, um, oil of lemon eucalyptus. Yes, I
1: was going to mention that. Good.
0: Um, has been studied, and, and this is unusual because mostly essential oils aren't looked at, but this one has been and is found to be effective. Again, read the labels. It's usually not um, approved for under three-year-olds, and you've got to be careful with, you know, skin uh, irritation and I, I such don't think as
1: you, that. you excuse me. You yeah. won't put it on you, you don't put essential oils directly on your skin. Um, you have to dilute it and have yeah. some carrier of some sort, aloe vera or yeah. something. You know. Um
0: Yeah. There are a couple more um yes. uh natural products that have not gotten well actually I think they have gotten EPA registration but they're not available yet. Uh, one is available called undecanone. Its trade name is Bioood. It's a wild tomato plant mm. um, repellent, and it has a good good reputation. At least a couple of studies that suggest it's it's effective. C- can you say that again? What's the name of that? It's uh, it's the number two dash undecanone. U n d e c a n o n e.
1: We'll have that on the website. Yeah. Undecanone. Undecanone. Two, and you and Diaz and Deborah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Okay. And the other is one that is being developed, but I'm not sure is um, all that available because it's still uh, pretty expensive. It's a, It's been used as a food additive for apparently a long time. Oh, that's but scary. Okay. being identified as uh, <laughs> a repellent. It's called nutcatone, <laughs> N-O-O-T.
1: Wait, can we just take a moment to think about that for a second? Hi, it's a food additive, and now we're going to use it as an insect <laughs> repellent. Okay, I, well, I'm not even going to say another word. Well, just well, just sit but, on that one
0: for. But me. that's true for all essential oils, isn't it?
2: I uh, mean,
0: they're considered safe because taken in small amounts. Okay, they are not. This is an essential harmful. oil. That's why EPA doesn't look at it. Yes, it's Newt? From Okay,
1: spell it again, because I I was being. Yeah, uh, that's you know. okay. Being, n- being uh, Madam Curie here, okay. N o o t yeah,
0: k a t o n e, newt Catone.
2: Oh.
0: It's um, it's found in either Alaskan yellow cedar, oh. or in citrus um, skins. I think. So if mm. you've ever had, I guess Fresca, you've had a little <laughs> newt Catone.
1: <laughs> oh, that is very funny.
0: How about that?
2: Uh, but
0: I- anyways, it, it it appears to have a decent. Um, profile and it looks like it's going to be effective and it may even okay. be effective for clothing um though the studies that i have seen do not demonstrate its lasting ability the same as permethrin has so and then don't forget your tick check when you come in from oh. from, from your adventure uh, a, a shower within two hours of your adventure what, however you look and feel all over your body remember behind the knees and the groin at the waistband bra line Armpits behind the ears and the scalp you 've got to do a careful tick check. You find a tick, careful, timely removal, and uh write it on the calendar. Remember that this happened save the tick save the tick
1: and we can send it in, and we' we'll, you know now we 're saying Un- University of Maine did you say, and we 'll have an address mm-hmm. and and' I'll, yeah, you know i can 't believe it we're almost at we're almost at the at the end, we just have a couple of minutes left, B. oh my gosh, I know as usual, this is flown by. <laughs> um really we should just we just
0: have to keep going and and and, and keep keep doing this. Well I um, so appreciate that you bring this message out because it's it is the right time of the year to be really uh, getting people mindful. You know we're not trying to scare people silly. Don't forget to check your pets by the way. They get lined too. And but but you know it, we want you to be able to work and recreate safely outdoors, this is like buckling your seatbelt or putting on a life jacket or a bike helmet. You have to adapt new methods to to keep yourself healthy
1: well i think the the real the real deal is to to listen again and do the permethrin, the thecardin uh, the de do the prevention. And uh, so you're saying if you're doing your socks and and, and your, your shorts, you might even be able to get away with shorts.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, if you've got the skin in between, just be mindful. Ticks tend to crawl up. Uh, so the reason that the socks and shoes work is they tend to crawl up.
2: Okay, but they crawl if up. if you're
0: at knee height... Uh, vegetation
2: oh.
0: then the tick mate is gonna be at the top of the vegetation okay. you're in. Oh my
2: god. So We're long be parents. mindful.
0: Forget it. Be mindful of where you are and, and Okay. Uh, the the edge of the woods is most risk, but brushy areas, the edge of the woods, wood okay. piles, you know, where there Thank are you. rodents there are ticks.
1: Well there you go. With more to continue, our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Beatrice Antier. Thank you again for talking with us today, and of course for being a faithful Healthy Options participant over the years. It is our thirty-first anniversary, so yay on uh, May Day! Um, and for your continued efforts, thank you, B, for throughout Maine to educate us all about ticks, tick illnesses, and of course prevention strategies. We'll have websites that you've recommended and the names of some of the products you've recommended. We do not. Get any uh, uh, kickback from any of these things we're talking about. Yes, me we'll, too. <laughs> we'll have none of us. We'll have links to these and other information that was mentioned on weru.org. In the meantime, if you missed any part of the program or would like to share it, go to weru.org. And uh, you can also find past interviews with Dr. Santier, Candace Dickey in the Healthy Options Archives. Thank you, Amy Brown, for engineering. Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, we appreciate all of our WERU listeners and supporters. Thank you so much. And I'm Rhonda Feynman and I am wishing you the best in health. Thank you.